Many of us grew up in modern evangelical Christianity, which has a huge emphasis on the individual. My faith is about me and God. We speak of our personal relationship with God. We have personal devotions. It's a very individual thing. So naturally, we read the book of Romans in the same way. We assume that what Paul is on about is my personal relationship with God. We've read it as a step-by-step guide on how I get right with God so that I can go to heaven when I die. But what if we're looking at this letter all wrong? What if it's not about who's in and who's out? In fact, what if Paul is actually saying that everybody is in? Welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but rather uncertain. In the last episode, we started talking about the book of Romans and some of the problems that arise for people questioning or deconstructing the modern evangelical view of Christianity. Of course, the book of Romans is the backbone of conservative evangelical theology. So many of our doctrines come from there. Things like original sin, salvation, justification, sanctification, penal substitutionary atonement, predestination, all seem to be supported by the book of Romans. So because of that, the book of Romans is sacred ground. I get that. In my last episode, I threw out the question, what if Paul got it wrong? Now, if you haven't figured it out by now, I do love jarring questions. I love to make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Rocking the boat has always been a fun pastime for me. If I was not such a bull in a china shop, I might have said it a little bit differently. More like this. What if Paul was just a step in the process of us coming to terms with what Christ did on the cross? What if his word is not the last word, but the first word in a lifetime of coming to terms with the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Now, maybe if I had said it like that, It would have been a little bit easier to process for some people. I don't know. The truth is, that is actually closer to what I believe. If I say that Paul got it wrong, I can just throw it all out and ignore it. If I say that it's a step in the process, then I have to work through it and see what Paul was getting at in order to be able to move it all forward. Also, in saying that Paul got it wrong, I don't want to minimize the role that Paul played in terms of our Christian faith. That point in history was so critical for the church. Here's all of Judaism that they had believed and practiced for thousands of years, and then comes the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Suddenly, everything changed. So what do we do with that? I don't think for a minute we can minimize how crazy this was for the early disciples and for Paul. 
they now had to think back on everything that they had always believed and then put it with everything that Jesus had said. And remember, that wasn't written down yet. And then, with the help of the Holy Spirit, try to make sense of it all. That period of time is truly amazing in the history of the church. So, to get at Romans a little further, let's begin by talking about what is going on in the church historically at this time. A very serious rift had developed between the Jews who had become followers of Jesus and the Gentiles that had as well. There were Christian Jewish leaders that strongly believed that the Gentiles needed to follow Jewish customs in order to be Christians. Things like dietary laws and, most importantly, circumcision. It had become such a problem that all of the leaders had to gather together in Jerusalem to figure out what the heck to do with this problem. You find the story in Acts chapter 15. But after lots of debate, the leaders decided that Gentiles didn't have to get circumcised, but that they should abstain from sexual immorality and from eating meat that had been offered to idols. To me, this has always felt like a little bit of a compromise, or on my more cynical days, a classic example of church politics. Let's get rid of the circumcision thing, which the Jews won't be very happy about, so we better give them something. So we'll give them some rules, like we can do the sex thing and the meat bit, and then that should make everybody happy and we should all be good. Just as a little bit of a side note, it's quite interesting that when Paul writes his letter to the church in Corinth, which is after the council at Jerusalem, he doesn't keep to those rules. In fact, he says in Corinthians that eating meat that has been offered to idols is actually fine. Everything is permissible, he says. But, he says, the bottom line is all about love. Let love rule your actions, not rules, not law, not systems. But what seems to be clear in all of this is that the council in Jerusalem didn't seem to solve the problem. Paul addresses it in his letter to Corinth, addresses it to his letter in Galatians, and even in Romans, all of which were written later. The Jews and the Gentiles were at odds with each other, and I don't think we can overemphasize the impact that that had on the new church. Now, hold on to that for a moment, and let's look at what's happening in Rome specifically. In around 41 AD, Roman Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. So for a little more than 10 years, the Christian church in Rome was only Gentile believers. Then in the early 50s, Jews were allowed to come back. When the Christian Jews get back to the church in Rome, they find out that the Gentiles had done away with all of the Jewish customs. How dare they? See, the Jews saw themselves as the true people of God. The Gentiles could come in as some kind of a subgroup as long as they jumped through all the hoops, but the truth is they would never really be the people of God like the Jews were. 
And the Roman Gentiles were unhappy because they didn't want all the regulations that the Jews wanted to put on them. They saw themselves as free in Christ, full stop. And it created quite a tension. Okay, with all that as a backdrop, Paul writes to the church in Rome. And and here's my premise. Now, by the way, this isn't original in any sense of the imagination. Scholars like N.T. Wright, Pete Enns, Brian McLaren, and numerous others have influenced my thinking on this. But this is the premise. The book of Romans is not written as a personal doctrine of salvation. It's not about how I get my ticket to heaven when I die. It's written to help the church in Rome understand who the people of God actually are, both Jews and Gentiles. The promises of God are to both Jews and Gentiles. Here's how Pete Enns describes what Romans is about in a blog that he wrote. I'll quote this. Paul's central concern is really a question. Who constitutes the people of God? Paul's answer, if I may paraphrase, Jews and Gentiles together on equal footing, united and marked off, not by observing circumcision or dietary restrictions, but by their common faith that Jesus is God's final answer to how all the world will be reconciled. And that is why you have to get along and love each other. All of you, Jew and Gentile together, are the new people of God. Unquote. Okay, let's start with Romans chapter 1 and see how this reframing of Paul's letter plays out. Chapter 1, after a few paragraphs of introduction, Paul makes this statement in verse 16 that some would say is the theme of the entire book of Romans. It's a verse many of you know. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Paul is saying right up front that both Jews and Gentiles are the people of God. It's not about keeping rules or not keeping rules. Being the people of God is not something you were born into. It's about what Christ has accomplished for everybody. Then in verse 18, Paul launches into this rant about sin. In my Bible, this section is titled, God's Anger at Sin. It starts out like this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Then in verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And then at the end of the chapter, Paul launches into this list of sins, wickedness, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, hostility, gossip, slander, insolent, arrogant, 
boastful, contrivers of all sorts of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, covenant breakers, heartless, ruthless. So what is going on here? Well, what many Bible scholars think is that in this section, Paul is clearly targeting the Gentile lifestyle. It's a lot about temple worship and those kinds of things. No respecting or no self-respecting Jew would do such things. They followed the law. In fact, it was, it was the law that set them apart from the Gentiles, or at least they, they thought it did. They didn't create idols or engage in temple worship like the Gentiles did. So now the Jewish readers are all standing on their feet saying, Hallelujah, Brother Paul. Preach the word, brother. The truth is that Paul is just setting them up for what's next. Remember, the chapter divisions were not there in Paul's original letter. So after he lists this whole list of sins, and he has this long rant, he says this, You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad. You have no excuses. All you Jewish guys standing up in the front row shouting, Hallelujah, sit back down. Your judgmental attitude is just as bad. Then chapter 2 is the scathing indictment of the Jewish people. Verse 17, he writes this, You who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with him. You know what he wants. You know what is right because you have been taught his law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach the children the ways of God for you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? And then in verse 28, he says, For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it's a change of heart produced by the Spirit. Then, after slaying the Gentiles in chapter 1 and slaying the Jews in chapter 2, Paul brings it all together in chapter 3. And starting in verse 21, he says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith, in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned, or you could say, for both have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. Or you could say, and both are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Both Jews and Gentiles have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. Neither the Jew nor the Gentiles qualify for the promises of God. This is not a statement of how God sees me. This thing, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is is not a statement of total depravity. It's not a statement of my personal sin nature. It's addressing the problem that these true groups of people saw themselves as better than the other. See, the first three chapters of Romans make it clear that Paul isn't trying to help me as an individual know how to get to heaven when I die. It's written to a broken, fragmented church to say that it's not the rules you keep or don't keep that makes you the people of God. It's faith in believing that Jesus is God's final plan for reconciliation of the whole world. That makes you the people of God, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Now, that may seem like a subtle difference, but if it's true, it changes how I read the entire book of Romans. It doesn't make the book easier to understand. It's complicated no matter how I read it, but it certainly does change the meaning of some of the problematic passages that we encounter. So let's take a quick look at chapters 8 and 9 and and use this thinking to see how it changes things. In chapter 8, we read these words, verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This passage has been debated by pastors and theologians for many, many years. It's a proof text verse for Calvinists who believe in the doctrine of election. In other words, God chooses us. We do not choose God. We have actually no say in the matter at all. God chooses who will go to heaven and then by default who will go to hell. But when you read this passage, resist the temptation to read it as a statement on personal salvation. Rather, read it with the question, who are the people of God? When you do, you see that Paul is saying that God knew from the beginning who the people of God were. Now, if you go on to the next chapter, this theme still continues on. So in verse 25 and 26, Paul quotes a couple of passages from the prophet Hosea. So verse 25, it says, Concerning the Gentiles, God says this in the prophecy of Hosea. Now this is interesting. I'll stop there. Because when you read it in Hosea, it actually isn't concerning the Gentiles. It's concerning Jews that strayed away from God. Paul kind of reinterprets the Old Testament here, and says, when you read this thing in Hosea, understand it's actually concerning the Gentiles. But he goes on, and here's the quote, those who are not my people, I will now call my people. And I will love those whom I did not love before. 
And then verse 26 is another quote. It says, Then at the place where they were told, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Paul reinterprets Hosea to show that both Jews and Gentiles are the people of God, and they always have been. So who were the predestined? Who were the chosen? Both Jews and Gentiles. Paul wants us to see that the promises of God are for both. Now, if you read this whole predestined thing in Romans 8 as a statement about salvation, it's very confusing especially in the context of all the rest of Scripture and in the context of the nature of God, it's confusing. But when you start with the premise that Paul isn't talking about salvation at all, it makes much more sense. Man, there's so much more I could say about this subject and other passages we can unpack. But for now... I think I want to leave it there. I'm sure I'll come back to this over time because, believe me, I have much more research and thinking to do on this subject. But let me just wrap it up by saying this. The book of Romans isn't telling us what we have to do to be accepted by God, to be saved. It's telling us that we are accepted by God. It's not a thesis on how I have been separated from God because of my inherent sin. It's the story of God turning toward us in our sin. It's not a step-by-step guide on how to get forgiveness from God for my sin. It's the story of God healing sin. When Paul says that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from God's love in Christ, it is for everybody. We are all in Christ. Now, we can lean into that or we can lean away from that, but it doesn't change the fact that all are included. This, my friends, is the message of Romans. So if you're like me at all, this will mess with your head every time you read from the book of Romans. I hope it does. I hope it makes you think and question and struggle through this amazing letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Before I go, let me quickly say that if you want to financially help an old retired guy keep putting out content like this, you can do it through Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Skip Collins. You can give as little as a dollar a month off a credit card, any currency, anywhere in the world, and you can stop at any time. And I appreciate any help that you might be able to give. Well, that's it for now. Stay safe. We'll catch up again soon. Shalom. Shalom.